Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Smashpot Get your knee off the steering wheel I can't, I'm stuck Here, look out, I'll do it Oh! Well, you all settled in? Right, we can begin My name is... Alfie Alfie Alfie, bubbles with impudent humour and ripe modern wit Says the New York Times I was having a beautiful little life there was this manageress of a dry cleaners. And I was getting a suit cleaned in the bargain. Everybody's running after Alfie. Do you love me? Uh, uh, what can I say when you ask? You shouldn't ask, you know. I'll tell you when I feel like it. Would you like me to give you something to make you sleep? Now, there's a good idea. All right, then. Come with me. Michael Caine gives a brilliant performance, says Red Book Magazine. Is Alfie really as good as all that? Now, what's your ticket, Bert? Shelley Winters thinks so. Now, what's your address? Alfie returns the compliment. She's in lovely condition. Condition is everything in life. I'll just get you ready for your injection, Mr. Elkins. Oh, thank you, nurse. The New York Daily News gives Alfie four stars and says that people are going to stop talking about who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and start talking about Alfie. Well, well, what are you so impatient about? Alfie? A delightful comedy. A direct hit. Presented in the best of humor and with complete frankness, says the New York Post. Michael Caine is superb, says the Saturday Review. Alfie, you might say, has it made? Alfie, what's it all about? Alfie, is it just for the moment we live? I've had a lovely time, Alfie. As Life magazine puts it, you are going to enjoy Alfie very much. Hello and welcome to Smirsh Pod 2, The Kane Scrutiny, a podcast celebrating the vast oeuvre of Michael Kane, the highs, the lows and everything in the middle, hosted by me, John Rain. This truly is the podcast where you're only supposed to have a good time. This week we'll be heading to Swinging London and having a deep bathe in sweet misogyny. There'll be laughs, tears, grime and charm of a sort 
Yes, it's Alfie. And joining me to ask, what's it all about? It's journalist, writer and broadcaster Samira Ahmed, who can be found on Twitter as Samira Ahmed UK. Welcome back. Yay, thank you. Can I say, there'll be points where I'm going to tell you things Michael Caine said to me and I'm going to write them down. You're going to have to read them in his voice because I can't do a Michael. I'm the only person on the planet who can't do a Michael Caine impersonation. That is rare. <laughs> Everybody can do Michael Caine. But yes, I'll be happy to do that. Thank you. I'm from the wrong part of South London. I'm from the posher part of South London. Yeah. So I'm not exactly um, Rory Bremner's. But I can probably have a go. Okay. Fine. I am common, so it's easy for me. Um, so, Alfie, you chose Alfie. Yeah, I did. I think it's 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 a misunderstood film. It's one of my favourite films of that, of his. This and um, Muppet Christmas Carol, of course, mm. which is a magnificent performance. Very similar films in that respect. <laughs> both about people who are, are horrible. Yeah, but um, I think it's a feminist film in its own way, and it's an exquisite-looking film. And weirdly, it's a film where I have met and interviewed quite a lot of the cast. Wow. Yeah. Have you? Yeah, so we'll yeah, Murray Melvin, I know quite well now, um, and I've interviewed him about this. Um, Julia Foster, I met the other day, who plays, you know, the um, mother of his child, Gilda. Yeah. And um, who else have I met? I've interviewed Eleanor Bron, and that's three. Is there anyone else? Michael Caine. Michael Caine. I haven't interviewed him properly, but no. I have thrown a question at him. Mm. I don't know that. Else, we could so. get we could get that out of the way. So, yeah. 1994, I think it was. Mm. I was sent as a reporter to cover the BAFTA Awards when TV and um, film used to be together. So, John Travolta was there, and Hugh Grant and Liz Hurley were there for Four Weddings and a Funeral. And Pop Fiction was a big thing. Yeah. And Michael Caine was there. It was the first year. It sort of felt like a really big happening thing. And he walked in, and in the scrum, I think I hurled a question at him, which was, "Michael Caine, Michael Caine, what do you think?" Of the status of the British film industry. It was quite a hyper radio yeah. question. And he said, hang on. Mr. Kane, Michael Kane, what do you think of the state of the British film industry? The British film industry, the British film industry is alive and well and living in Los Angeles. Very good. So that's my, that's as close as I've got to interviewing Michael Kane. It's a good answer, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he, uh, he's given it many times. He's very good for sound bites. I think, yeah. He's very keen on his jaws answer about the house it bought. Exactly. He loves that. Yeah, no, I think I, I missed an opportunity to see him talk. At I got tickets to one of the BFI in conversations with yeah. some years ago and I couldn't go in the end. So my husband went with someone and he gave that story. Um, and basically every terrible film he'd made, he could tell you exactly which relative's house he'd bought with it. Oh, wonderful. Which is lovely. Yeah, that is nice. I think the swarm paid for a house for his mum, didn't it? Oh, yeah. we begin with a shot of mid 60s London. It's almost like the beginning of a Disney film. Yeah, then you see these do you dogs. Know, um, it is one of the great London films, and mm. I mean, Lewis Gilbert, who directed it, who you know, has the whole Bond connection because he mm. made some of the greatest Bonds. Yeah. Um, I was reading his obit because he only died um, in 2018. He yes. died just a few months um, before we were speaking, and and it came up with this really interesting line, which sums up why I think this film is so great. I'm just going to read it to you. Mm. Um, he had a sympathy for women, an eye for the exotic, and for the drama of cinema and the adventure. Isn't that lovely? That is lovely. And so, for a film that's entirely male point of view in theory there's huge amounts of sympathy for the women and I think who's the one who gets um, Guild is the one who gets her own scenes doesn't she yes. um, without him in them so it's not just his perspective yeah. um, and one of the things I'll say up front about this film watching it again is how exquisitely framed it is you know it looks partly like a Victorian melodrama when Michael Caine is kind of in a room with Guild and all the baby's laundry is hanging up there there's yeah. a lot of reflections and mirrors like out of Victorian portraits about guilt yeah. um, and when you think about all the kitchen sink drama that was happening on stage this is its cinematic um, kind of apex in a way because 
it's all shot in slums um, and then contrasted with kind of glamorous locations. Mm. But it looks like a beautiful, energetic, swinging London it film. It doesn't look like um, a typical kitchen sink drama, I no. think. No. It's funnily enough, watching it the other night, it doesn't feel like it's horribly dated either. Well, I'll tell you what has made it, um, if you call it dated, the honesty with which it deals with abortion. Oh, yeah. And there's a scene where you re- he goes in and he looks mm. at the um, the aborted remains. You couldn't conceive of a film like that being released in America now. No. Or being funded by American oh, money. No. no. But it, it's weird. It's, it's, I suppose it's because it's dealing with such a sort of reprehensible character on the surface that it doesn't... It just didn't feel like a... Sometimes you watch film kitchen sink dramas from this period. They don't date terribly well because everything seems like they're dealing in minuscule details when the bigger picture is more interesting. I think this one, the whole picture, just seems more relevant, as relevant today as it was then with the whole misogyny still being a thing in 2018. Yeah. And the locations are really well chosen. Most of them haven't changed. Out no. of the Tower of London, the um, the Chelsea Embankment, where the film starts, where he's meeting with St Martin, isn't he? Yeah. Um, for a sort of assignation, and she's, you know, she has these nights out with him when her husband's busy at his... What's his club? Oh. Uh, Photography. Does he do some kind of amateur... Hobby I can't club. remember now. Was it crafts or something? Yeah, or it's some lecture he's gone to. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. Um, and you suddenly have this insight into a world where, um, in some ways, it's socially very different, but all the locations are there. Mm. And you could still wander along a lot of the locations from Alfie. Yeah. And I think the glamour of the way that film is shot, even in the rain, those kind of lights glinting, it's very, you think of that Petula Clark song, Downtown. It's yeah. got that atmosphere to it. Yes, and you're right about things not changing because I found a website where they visited the locations and they pretty are pretty much identical. The only thing that's changed is his road is now full of parking spaces, but in those days he could literally park outside his house. Um, but yeah, um, so we see some dirty dogs running to a wasteland, <laughs> which is a bit of a euphemism. I think it is. Yeah, and um, Alfie's in his car with Millicent Martin, as you say, who's a married woman. And uh, he's got his hanky on his shoulder, which I thought was an interesting detail. I couldn't quite work out the purpose of that. I wonder if it's to do with her lipstick. I'm smear. thinking in makeup and lipstick. Yeah, class. And and you get the first instance of him referring to women as it. Yeah. Listen to it. It'll go home happy. It's not very nice, is it? I think even at the time, I think it was designed to shock. Hmm. Um, but it, I suppose that's one of the reasons I find it fascinating that at first glance it. He seems so appalling. But the film, you know, you know like Mad Men, where, um, you know, the, what's his name? John, um, Don Draper. The Don Draper character is sort of a kind of typical 60s, late 50s man. But actually, he's, the way he's, he's filmed, he's far more sympathetic and women watching it feel that, mm. you know, he's someone they could love, whereas in reality he wouldn't have been. I think Alfie's like that. You know, at first glance, he seems awful. But the way he's portrayed, the conversations he has with his best friend, mm. um, he's a man full of feelings. And he talks about them and he talks about feeling inadequate. That's Absolutely. remarkable. Yeah, it's true. Um, but he says that when, when, when married women get hot on you, it's time to call it off. <laughs> And she said, he says, as soon as they want to introduce him to her husband, and then she mentions, yeah. you should meet my husband. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I thought it was quite an interesting line because it's also about when you realise that she's normalised you into her routine. Yeah. And I think that's what it's really about mm. because then she'd be using you rather than you using her. Yeah. Yeah, but he goes to visit Gilda. Yeah, who's his common-law wife, I suppose we would say now, although that such a thing doesn't exist. No. Partner? 
Well, what kind of partner? Wow. Um, but yes, the mother of his child. Slave, essentially. He likes to get women yes. and put them into slavery. So that's Julia Foster, who has such beautiful, haunting oh. eyes. She was in Alleluia recently with um, you know, the Alan Bennett play. Mm. And of course, that f- plays all about geriatric patients. So I told my daughter and I said, this is, this is Julia Foster. And she's playing this sort of 90-year-old, but of course, is probably only in her early 70s. So they're acting much older than they are. And she's still got that beautiful, exquisite, this sort of touching eyes. One of the things I find fascinating about this film is the language that Michael Caine invents about his women. So he talks about her smelling milkified mm. and that he quite likes it. And I think, one, how often do you ever hear a guy ever say that, that kind of weird, slightly sort of sexual idea about how you might regard a woman who's just had a baby and is breastfeeding. Mm. So I think, although he does treat her appallingly, it's, it's quite interesting because he does find her sort of sexier as a result too. Yeah, I mean, he obviously has feelings for her because he's kind of obsessed with her throughout the entire film and the child. Yeah, well, so. it turns into a bit of a Father's for Justice moment later on, doesn't yes, he? Yes, it does, he does, yeah. Um, he tells Gil that he's not the marrying sort and she's a standby and she knows it. So he's very derogatory towards her. Graham Stark, in the meantime, has visited her to tell her he, he still loves her. She oh, doesn't no. like is he the milkman? Yeah. There's an irony to that, isn't there? That he's the milkman, but he's never slept with her and is incredibly, um, what's the word for it? He's very um, chivalrous, isn't he? Yes. He's, you know, I would, ha- I would absolutely want to be your husband and I would happily treat Malcolm as my own. He's a nice man and she's obviously not interested in nice men at that point. Yeah, I see, again, this is a Lewis Gilbert's touch, isn't it, is... The dilemma of a woman like her. And mm. in a sense, that's why when I said it's framed a bit like a Victorian film. These these early scenes between Gilda and um, Alfie, when they're in the you know, the small parlour and she's got the laundry on the Sheila maid and it's yeah. kind of steamy Victorian room and there's lots of mirrors. It feels like a Victorian melodrama about how a bad man might treat his mistress. Mm. Um, and and the dilemma of a woman, like a Victorian woman, that you might think about marrying not for love, but to have some security and to avoid the stigma. Mm. But it's also that time when, you know, to be an unmarried mother is still a huge deal. A lot of women are being pressured into giving up their babies for yeah. adoption. And, of course, that's what Alfie's trying to get her to do. Yes. Don't, want, don't want me to get too attached. Mm. Yeah, try not to do that. Is it disturbing for you as a guy watching that? It was, actually, yeah. Because, obviously, you're aware of people like that. But seeing it so um, with exposed teeth, as it were, just so upfront like that is quite... Shocking, I suppose. You know, the one thing that's missing, you nearly get, you nearly hit somebody, but you never see Alfie slap any of his girlfriends, do you? No. There's one time when I think he says he will. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons this film has held up well, is you never quite, that would be the crossing of the line, wouldn't it? We would mm. find that unbearable. Whereas as it is, you know he's kind of monstrous, but he still has a human side that redeems him. Yeah. But in reality, he probably would have been hitting them, wouldn't yeah, he? Yeah, I think so. In fact, I'd, I'd misremembered that he did. I mean, he does later, but that's because someone's hysterical. And that's what oh, they yeah. did in those days. But God. Yeah, I'd misremembered that he hit someone. I, I could have sworn he'd hit Jane Asher, but he, he did No, he threatens to, doesn't that's he? That's right, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, top tip, I did a health and safety course run by Marines. It was actually a hostile environment course. And they still had to tell people in the 1990s, don't slap someone when they're hysterical. That's not what you're supposed to do. I wonder where that came from. I think it came from cartoons, didn't it? Yeah. Or all Marx Brothers films. Or Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry. God, imagine. He tells uh, Gilda, I like you a lot, when she tells him he loves her. She's very Alan Partridge. I love you, in a way. Um, <laughs> but it seems to satisfy her. Which is really sad, isn't it? Yeah. And then he tells her that she she works in a cafe, and the people she works for are really nice. And he says, you should start fiddling the till. Yeah. 
He says, I'd never do that. They're really nice to me. He goes, that's exactly why you should do it. They wouldn't suspect you. Because if we find out he's fiddling at work. It's really, those are the, the little insights, aren't they, into a certain kind of behaviour that are part of what make this film hold up so well. Yeah. Because every detail is real. That You know, you have that divider, would you fiddle it? Mm. And, and even now, that's the kind of thing people would discuss, especially in low wage. Yeah. But even economy. his boss is like, I don't mind you fiddling, just don't take the mickey. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so uh, he finds out that Gilda's pregnant and he has an awkward... Uh, oh, I forgot he's not, she's not had the baby yet. No, so she tells him she's pregnant. Ahead of myself. She gets on a bus and she has this really awkward chat with Graham Stark. Oh, he's not a milkman, he's a bus conductor. He's a bus conductor. Yeah. Sorry. That's all right. He's got the same hat. They, do, they did look like milkmen. They loved hats in those days, didn't they? Whatever your job was, you had a hat. Train drivers had hats, bus conductors... It's quite a contrast on the buses, isn't it? Mm. Where the conductors were horrible, lecherous Lotharios and here's lovely Graham Stark. Although, because I'm so used to... I think of him in all those... Seen the Pink Panther movies? Yes, he was and, in every Peter Sellers And, of course, and he's in, in um, Victor Victoria, so I keep expecting to trip over holding a tray of something. Yeah, he was... That is not my dog. <laughs> yeah, he was Peter Sellers' best friend. Yeah, but stuff came out about him later which is unpleasant we, oh won't, we won't get into I don't spoil no no no, no. Um, but yeah he, he starts telling on the bus you know I, 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 my heart's still broken about you and you, it's, the directing's really funny because all the extras just start looking at him with complete disdain like <laughs> what are you doing mate just be quiet I thought that was quite authentic you would think this is inappropriate behaviour in public mm. you know we're not supposed to talk about he goes and on also and on. he's not he's not paying attention to his job aren't they annoyed that he's yeah. just talking to her he says can I have a ticket when you've got a moment that's right <laughs> Alpha gets upset because he isn't enjoying and he says that you're getting more attention than me. I'm having to give attention to you. It should be the other way around because she's oh pregnant. Yeah, awful. Uh, but Gilda wants to get the baby adopted. That was her plan. And um, Alfie starts explaining to her that men are more sensitive. They don't want to hear about all the details. <laughs> uh, but the baby's born. We get a little cut to the future. Baby's born and he goes to see Gilda. And she tells him the name. And he says, oh, it's Malcolm Alfred. And he says, Malcolm Bleeding Alfred. He doesn't like that name. And um, the best bit is when he, she, the, the nurse comes and says, here's your baby. And gives him to M- uh, Michael, to Alfie, sorry. And at no point in this film does Alfie ever say to anybody out loud that he's the father of the that's baby. Right. Or, and later on, even when he gets someone into trouble, he doesn't admit that it's him that's done it. He's very not prepared to take any sort of ownership of anything. But the nurse literally hands him the baby and he looks at it and he says it's nice or whatever. And then he says, oh, quick, he's moving. You better have him back. <laughs> not interested at all. And he brings a tiny flowers in his coat because he doesn't want people to see him coming in with flowers. They're all squashed. God. <sighs> oh, dear. Um, so he's... Um, hang on a sec. What have I written here? He's got a dry cleaner. Oh, yeah. While Gilda's in hospital recovering from having a child... He starts telling us about how he's got a lovely dry cleaner on the side. Ah. Who does his suits. You know who that is? Who? So she was a pop artist called Pauline Botty or Pauline Boty, B-O-T-Y. Right. And one of the few female pop artists of the time who was who was well known. But she died very young of cancer. Oh. And she was pregnant and she decided not to have treatment so that the baby would be all right. Yeah. And Ali Smith's novel Autumn is partly about her and how oh. um, she was sort of forgotten about and her brother sort of dumped all her paintings in a farmhouse where they were partly damaged they were eventually recovered years later Mm. so she sort of resurrected her but she talks about her in this film where she's the young woman in the the dry cleaners and he talks about how you know he goes in and it's one of those sequences with the with the sort of where they lock off the camera and he walks in and then he walks out from behind the um the sort of line of of dry cleaned items having obviously 
<laughs> had a nice time yeah. and got a nice new suit in the bargain, yeah. dry cleaned. Um, and it's her. And it, and it's I remember Ali Smith talking about how she's in just that one scene, but she's she's the one woman in it who's completely her own agent. Yeah. Um, I suppose true. you could argue the Millicent Martin character is too. Yeah, by mind. the end. By the end. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it's just one of those little. There's a story to that tiny little moment. Yeah, uh, but he's also got a foot doctor, Dora from Pimlico, and an odd bird that came by chance. And he gives chocolate to the baby when oh, he takes it out yeah, for a walk. I, I, that's one of my first notes. And he thought, even even by the weaning standards of the 1960s, I'm sure chocolate to a four-month-old baby if that, yeah. are there on solids at that point no no <laughs> it's just this funny image of this baby in a pram with chocolate all oh, around Alfie, his mouth. what have you done yeah he's all right <laughs> it's a bit chocolate <laughs> <laughs> uh, but gilda has changed her mind about giving up the baby and yeah. alfie says she won't be able to bring him up and he says things like he'll pick up bad habits he won't speak proper mm. she goes he, he will if i teach him oh you won't be able to he's really horrible to her but it's interesting, isn't it? Because he's also talking about his himself and his own background. Yeah. As I say, the more I think, every time I watch this film, I think how amazing that a film like this is made about a working class experience, even if arguably a negative one. Hmm. But it's a beautiful work of art and it played massively with the mainstream audience in America yeah. as much as here. Yeah, well, Americans couldn't get enough of Britain in the 60s, could they? And this is another side of it. And this is, you know, this is... This is Michael Caine at his most exquisite. I mean, I think in that sequence now when you know he's having the argument about giving up the baby for adoption and it's all shot like a Victorian painting in the parlour. I just that's the first time you really you see his beautiful eyes. Oh yes. And and it's it's hard to imagine that how many people turned down this role before he got it for the film? Terrence I don't know, Stamp, actually. Terence Stamp. I got. I made a list actually because it's in his autobiography. Which is oh, like, I didn't um, know about this. Anthony Newley. Oh. Uh, Terence Stamp had played him on Broadway. Um, um, Richard Harris and Lawrence Harvey, who bafflingly got offered all these kind of working class hero roles, but you know, always you know he did that really bizarre, supposedly Bradford accent in Room at the Top. Yeah. Um, but yeah, these and James Booth, who who got the part that Alfie was that Michael Caine was supposed to get in Zulu. Mm, that's kind of Cockney. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's that's one, two, three, four, five people ahead of him. I think Terence Stamp would have been all right. But he would. You can't separate Michael Caine from this part, can you? It's just so... Yeah, but the other thing which I, I, I really was surprised at was to hear that the part... I don't know if it was when it was originally being cast as a play. Michael Caine did go up for it and they gave it to John Neville, mm. who is... He looks like John Gielgud. He's one of the poshest... Beautiful, but one of the poshest actors you can think of. He mm. played um, Baron Munchausen in the Terry Gilliam he Adventures did. of. Yes. And he was... There's a great photograph of him as a young Hamlet, Judy Dench's Ophelia. But again, the idea that he played... Alfie first, mm. um, when the role is indelibly Michael Caine. It's again one it's of those strange, odd. serendipitous accidents oh, that he I'm ended so, up I'm so pleased it. he did do it. Yeah. I mean, it's still been good, but I can't imagine anyone doing it this well. Ooh, is this important? I should tell you what Michael Caine has recently said about playing this role, because he felt yes. he needed to explain. Right. Yes. Let me put something to rest once and for all. I am not... Sorry, you should be doing this. Imagine it in that accent. Yeah, I'll imagine. Yeah, go Okay. On. Um, let me put something to rest once and for all. I am not Alfie. We were both cockney lads and we both like women, but that is where the similarities end. How he treats women is the exact opposite of how I would treat a woman. That wasn't me, that was acting. I'm glad he said that. I'm glad he said that. I mean, it's interesting <laughs> he's saying it now, but Does he I say, think, uh, I'm sure me, he said it before. Let me one, make one thing clear. I do not kill giant sharks. <laughs> Jaws of Revenge, that was merely acting. I have no problem with bees. <laughs> 
What did he say? Yeah, see, this is the thing he said about getting the part. A different series of things had to go right for me to get the lead in Alfie. First, Bill Norton had to write the part of a lifetime for a young working-class British actor, a cheeky, charming, irresponsible, and ultimately rather sad and lonely lad about town. And then... Once the not-so-successful play got made into a film, half a dozen people had to turn the part down. And that's when that list of names came yeah. from. Oh, and then eventually, Johnny Gilbert, the son of the director, Lewis Gilbert, suggested me. A brilliant example of a friend who had my back, by the way. Oh. Lewis didn't really know who I was, but Johnny took him to see me as Harry Palmer in The Ipcrest File. Mm. And that was how I got cast in Elfie. Wow. And it got me my first Academy Award nomination. Did you know he had to redo 124 lines of dialogue for the US release? I did not know that. So the Americans apparently would never have understood his Cockney accent. And apparently Shelley Winters told him that. So this is, again, a quote from Michael Caine. Hmm. She told me that she hadn't understood a word I'd said during the shoot and had resorted to watching my lips to know when to come in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. It's funny how uh, sort of... um... I should say that's from... Blowing the bloody doors off. Sorry, that sounds a bit Australian. Can you say it? What's this Blowing name? the bloody doors off. That's really I thought good. you did a good job there, though. The you'll, only you'll voice there. I can do is the Wicked Witch of the West in, in The Wizard of Oz. So when you ever get around to doing Judy Garland podcast, I'll, yeah. be, I'll be there for that. It could be called Friends of Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> but it might give off the wrong impression. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't mind. Um, um, but years later, uh, we, we're seeing that little Malcolm is now a little toddler. Now, there's a lovely slow-mo sequence here, which is like a montage of... Uh, sorry, I don't like Cher and Clueless. It's like a montage. Yeah. But it's it's really striking because it's this really young Michael Caine, this young dad playing with his son. And I yeah. was thinking how unusual it is now to see fathers in their early 20s. I mean, I know... It's not it's not the kind of mainstream image we see. We no. think of them as being much, much older. No, right. And it reminded me of seeing all these images of my dad um, in the early 60s, chasing my older brother around, exactly mm. around the time this film was made. Um, and I think yeah, there's something really powerful about they do very young parents yeah. and the very different kind of parenting you do with toddlers. Yeah. It was lovely. It's a lovely little sequence. Is this, is this worth mentioning this, who the cinematographer was on this? Why yes, I think it this is worth so mentioning. amazing, right? Because he's, he's Czech. Otto Heller. No, Otto Heller did the lighting, sorry. Mm. Um, and who was the cinematographer? Oh, I'm confused now. But it said there was a Czech cinematographer um, who'd worked on who worked on Funeral in Berlin. He did Peeping Tom. He did White Eagles Dare. Oh. And a film called The Boy Slaves with Fraser Hines, 1958, which sounds different. Um, but they are so well lit. Otto and Heller is the cinematographer. It is a cinematographer, yeah. yeah. So everything about the way it looks, it's photographed by someone who has an eye for a photograph as much as an eye for, yeah. for moving pictures. Yeah. What was the one on the list there? there was, um, I'll give you the list. Yeah, Peeping Tom. Right. Uh, Shanghai Surprise. Wow. Uh, Pink Panther, actually. Puppet on a Chain, 71. The Medusa Touch. Where Eagles Dare. The Boy Slaves of Fraser Hines. Uh... Oh, yeah, I've got The Lady Killers, Peeping Tom, Funeral in Berlin. That makes Born in 1896, sense. died in 1970. Wow. And then he, and he and works as late as 2001 on Conspiracy. From Beyond the Grave. Oh, that can't be him, can it? No. I might be confusing with Otto. Right, so the lighting was done by Otto Heller, by somebody else. And who was that? I don't know. There's somebody else who worked on the films, and, the, and they include The People's Princess, a tribute to 1998. But I don't know who that was. Let's not blame Otto Heller as he died in 1970. Yeah, he had nothing to do with Diana's death. He had nothing death. to do with it. But you think about so he's, he's born in the kind of early age of cinema, mm. and he must have started working in the silent era. Yeah. Um, and so this is one of his last films, because, you know, he dies only... Is this 64? Yeah, I think, I think so. 64 or 65. So he dies only six years after making this. So you kind of got him with that lifetime of... of 66. Um, 
Yeah, 66, that's four years before four he years dies. Later. So you've got a lifetime of really profound experience working on those. What's that expressionist cinema you must have started? Yeah. Doing. I mean, Lady Killers looks fantastic. See, and you think about all the shadow and all yeah. the interiors. Again, it's all slum housing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's like and a, laundry and all those things that he uses as different layers yeah. of composition. It's like a black and it's like a colour black and white film. Yes, so that's exactly what this deep is like. And dark. And like yeah. Peeping Tom as well, it's kind of got an intensity of lighting mm. and that kind of sense of there's something very dark about the man in it, and the same way there is about Alfie. Yeah. But all the women are beautifully lit. Yes. Shelley Winters, we'll get to her later on. Oh, she's beautifully she's lit in beautifully this. Lit. Yeah. Smashpot. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Smashpot. Um, so, um, Alfie goes for a chest X-ray. Oh, yeah, is that was, so... So I'm not going to tell you my Eleanor Bronze story. Actually, I'm not sure I've got much to say about it. Well, he hasn't got to Eleanor Bron- Bronze yet. Oh, he hasn't got yet. to her yet. No, he just goes on a like, sort of mobile van x-ray thing. Yeah, so um, I'm always interested in the way the NHS is portrayed in this film because it's it's the days when actually there's a full service, mm. but you realise how incredibly unhealthy this generation of people still are because they mm. were raised before, the, you know, they are born before the, the NHS. Yeah. And it's all that smoke and the air pollution. Um, so even with all that money thrown at giving chest screenings, everyone's got the ghastly sort of industrial revolution diseases. Yeah, everyone's they? in a sanatorium. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny. And what the life expectancy, even all this, is probably still only what, 60-ish yeah. for a guy. 
Well, Michael's proved them wrong, hasn't he? <laughs> He's still going strong at 86, I think. He is. What have I got written down here? Oh, no, that's later. I'm still going strong at 86. Cigarette. He's having a cigarette in the van, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he is. Well, everyone smoked then, didn't they? Everyone smoked when they were smoking. Um, uh, Gilda meets Graham Stark for lunch. Um, now, that lovely church, I used to live very near there. Um, it's right on, the, there's a bend in the river by Battersea. Yeah. And of course you can see the old flour mills and things. Yeah. And she works in the flour mill, doesn't she, or something? Uh, no, it's a brewery. Brewery, but there was a flour mill right near there that was still operating at the time, which is now shut. Um, you can see Battersea Power Station as well. Battersea Power yeah. Station as well. And it's um, it's a Hawksmoor church, isn't it? Oh, yeah. it is lovely. It's a lovely scene, it's this as really well. It's a really lovely because, scene, and that church reoccurs, doesn't it, later? Because Graham's, Graham Stark's, you know, basically just talking to her normally and still being quite affectionate towards her. And then she just asks him the question out of nowhere, really. How would you feel about bringing up another man's child? Mm-hmm. And he has to think about it for a moment, does he? And then he says, well, I, I think I'd be a good dad to him and all this. And it's such a lovely, sweet moment because G- Gilda's like this prisoner. She is, you know. Into this it horrible is a kind of Victorian woman's dilemma. It's like a novel by George Eliot, mm. you know, where you know, a working-class girl is trapped. Um, and the only difference is she's not been abandoned by some rich sort of landowner's son yeah um which is i think the plot of adam bede isn't it and Tess of the d'urbervilles um she's choosing between two working class men it's you know it's a film that's in t- set entirely in a working class point of view that's, mm. why, that's what gives it its dignity i think i think so yeah but um so gilda meets alfie again he comes to her house who says does he say to white talk Oh, no. Yeah, go on. Sorry. Well, he, he talks Malcolm to bed with a little story, doesn't Abu he? Abu Ben Adam. Now, yeah. I, I, when I, you hear him recite it, I've, I've heard it done as a, on a Not Nine O'Clock News sketch by Rowan Atkinson. That's right, where he talks the nonsense at the yeah, end. Yeah, but I'd, it's disappeared from kind of common parlance. Mm. It was not a story I knew as a child, and I grew up in the early 70s. Have you ever heard of it before? Only from the Not Nine O'clock News sketch. <laughs> Is it an Orientalist kind of Arabian Nights fantasy? Possibly. Abu Ben Adam. <laughs> but it is sweet. I mean, it yeah. actually sounds quite ooh, it sounds quite obscure and posh now, doesn't it? Oh, Malcolm's very sweet. Malcolm's lovely. Yeah, when he turns over and goes to bed. Reminds me of my two little kids. Um, but Gilda tells him that Graham Stark came to see her and she's, he asked her to marry him. Because he shows her his uh, mum's wedding ring, doesn't he? He says, you don't get these anymore. Yeah. Graham Stark does. Yeah. And Alfie basically just has a, a tantrum and says, well, he go does. and marry him then. I know. It's, again, it's fascinating because you've got this sense of someone trying to do the right thing mm. and referring back to a family tradition of marriage through their mother's ring. And he's... Yeah, I know. It's just it's so interesting because you can't compare it to anything else that's going on in contemporary cinema. And doesn't um, Alfie say, why talk it over with me? You're a free agent. And yeah. the way he chooses to throw the language of sort of liberation at her when it when it suits him. Um, he also sticks the boot in, doesn't he? Because he, she says, Malcolm needs a dad. And he says, I am a dad. And she says, not a weekend dad. Yeah. A dad every day. And he goes, well, he needs a mother for that matter. Because there's all that stuff about childcare, isn't there? Well, yeah, because she, she has to work uh, from Monday to Thursday at the brewery. You know, and actually, this is what I have to say. My mother told me these amazing stories about trying to find childcare in the early 60s. My brother was born in 63 and she worked at Bush House and her coming home one day and finding her, finding his nappy hadn't been changed all day and he was in a real state. You know, she was leaving a baby with a bunch of other babies in someone's front room Mm. and she was so distressed that she ended up quitting her job and said to my dad, I don't care if we, you know, we can't afford 
quite, but I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And, you know, my parents started out in a bedsit in Bayswater. A lot mm. of couples did. Yes. Um, and so although, of course, it's not the poverty of this, I'm really conscious of how humble my parents' start in London was yeah. and how terrifying it was for young working women yeah. trying to make ends meet. I mean, it still is. We know that now. Yeah. God, especially for single parents. But there's more awareness now, I think, and there's yeah. more advice. But, but, in those but days, then you know, the idea nothing. was if you if you left your child with someone else and you, you'd failed anyway and you had only yourself to blame, mm. you had that the double guilt. Yes. Um, and the, the idea that he's not stepping up to it. But he loves telling the kid the stories. It's that idea he wants to be a sort of... Um, he wants to be a sort of almost like a celebrity dad where he wants the photo opportunity and having yeah. the fun and then wants to hand it back and do none of the the actual work. And he talks about Malcolm constantly through the film. That's why it's moving because you mm. can tell he loves him. You can tell he's a positive influence. Yeah. Um, and doesn't um, Gilda say, you know, I don't love him when she's talking about Graham Stark, but I respect him. Yeah. And again, it's such it's such an honest line. Yeah. Uh, I just I think this is perhaps one of the best scenes in the film. Yeah. Because. Alfie then just, he, he leaves the key he has to her flat and yep. walks out, doesn't he? Yeah. And it's the, it's everything about the way that a relationship breaks down when it's transactional. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking. But he's really happy because the next scene, he's got his new job as like a chauffeur. He's taking a group of businessmen to Brighton. But first, he's going to nip in and get his chest x-ray results. No parking restrictions. I worked out, it's Buckingham Palace Road, isn't it, where they put up the... It's supposedly the Westminster Hospital chest clinic. Right. I yeah. always watch these 60s films with the sense of, oh, you could park anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but yeah, that whole thing about the uniform that gives you this fake sense of um, smartness. Yeah, because um, he gets wolf whistled later by lots of people, doesn't he? When he walks into the cafe in that garb. This is probably some thesis to be written about chauffeurs in sixties films. Could have this, and then the James Fox character in um, not James, but you know what they do to the chauffeur in a performance. Performance, yeah. Yeah, there's something about the yeah. role of the chauffeur mm. in in cinema. That's glamorous. In those days, wasn't it? They have a big well, you're, you're sort of you're sort of getting an insight into another class, but you're not really of them. But you're on the fringes of them, so yeah. you get to witness it, and you can fool yourself, like Alfie does, that he's up there. But he goes to see Eleanor Bron. Um, who's the woman? Oh, she's so. This is in a way the best role. And the thing about Eleanor Bron that fascinates me, and I, I got her on front row when she turned eighty. I said, let's just use the excuse to do a career retrospective. Is if you look at her roles in the sixties, hmm. she's in every single great film yeah. of the swinging London. Yeah. She's in Help. She's in this. She's in Bedazzled. Mm. Um, she's in um, there's a Waris Hussein film um, with a very young Ian McKellen. She's a best friend in that. She never takes her clothes off. Mm. She always plays someone really intelligent. Yes. Um, and the thing in this, you know, the way that Mal uh, Michael Caine talks to the camera while he's having his um, examination, and there's a great scene where he's looking at the camera, and she comes and turns his face back to face yes. the other way. And again, that whole breaking of the fourth wall in a far more interesting and funny way. It's not a show-off thing. It's genuinely groundbreaking. It's gorgeous. She asks about his sleeping habits, and he tells her that very few birds can get into his rhythm of sleeping. Yeah, I know it's hard. He's trying to shock her, isn't he? Yeah, but she's, um, she's very prim and proper, but she's not shockable, I don't think. One of the things that fascinates me about this scene as well is because he takes his shirt off. Yeah. And I, I don't want to say I'm obsessed with, but I'm fascinated by how handsome men in the 60s look compared to how men think they have to look now. Yes. And so he's soft. Mm. He's very, very handsome. Mm. And he's got a hairy chest and he's absolutely a sex symbol. Mm. But if you look at young men now, I went to see Anthony Cleopatra at the National Theatre the other week and there's couple of young guys and there's a scene where they all have to take their shirts off because they're sort of sailors having a carousing thing yeah. and you could tell they're in their early 20s and they're completely ripped and waxed mm. and every single muscle is defined and technically they look very fit mm. but I just thought what happened to the days when you could be super sexy without having to have spent all day every day in the gym yeah Michael does that now by the way 
He's <laughs> a god when he takes his shirt off. Now. He's got an eight pack. But I just think it's important that men know, just in the way that women have been pressured to feel, I don't look like movie stars. I think in the past it was easier for men not to feel intimidated by what they saw on screen because yeah. actually movie stars sort of did look like them. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't have anybody in those days who were a big six-pack or anything. I mean, even Sean Connery, when he's making those Bond films, he's lost that sort of super bulk of the Mr. Universe era. Yeah. He? He's in Doctor No, he's still got it a bit. But yeah, yeah he loses it pretty quick. Yeah, and also, not, and I think Chris as well, not being waxed, that whole level of grooming that men, so many young men put themselves through. It's like, mm. why are you doing that? Women have been trying to get away from it for years. Yeah. Now you've joined it and made it worse. Well, it's an equal well, some world. some of us haven't. Well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Eleanor Bron, of course, we did loads of comedy as well. And it's, it's, at this point, she was working with um, Bird yeah. and Fortune. Yeah, well, she was in the establishment club yes. um, that Peter Cook set up. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. 63, isn't it? Because I had a tape when I was a kid, which was, I think it was the first policeman's, secret policeman's ball. It was called A Poke in the Eye with a Sharp Stick. And it was her and Bird and Fortune and Peter Cook doing sketches. And it's so funny. She was so funny. No, she was very much part of that mm. group. Um, the interesting thing is I also asked her when I interviewed her about... Um, whether she'd experienced any harassment because, you know, you know, historically yeah. it was a huge thing. And she said she honestly never did. And I mm. and I wondered if she just gave off this air, which is, don't even think about it, mm. because she is so classy. Yes. Um, I mean, she she says, you know, to some extent she was sort of like stereotyped as being exotic, so she often played the exotic yeah. thing. But then, you know, who's going to complain about playing, you know, the female lead in Help? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Must have been wonderful hanging it around. It was an interesting things. accent. Yeah. <laughs> Beattle. <laughs> uh, but he's totally got shadows on his lungs. This is your X-ray, Mr. Elkins. Blimey, is that me? Yes, it is. I've just a load of old ribs. I'm afraid there are two shadows on your lungs. Shadows on my lungs? What are you talking about, shadows? What sort of shadows? Look at this patch. You've got an infection here, and one here. An infection? But I, I can't have. I ain't been with nobody. It's not a question of it. Here, you've got to do something about this. Now don't worry, we can deal with it. Yeah, well, you better have it quick. I want the best attention there is. I'll even pay for it. It's just a question of rest. That's all you need, rest. I can't rest. I'm off to Brighton now with a party of licentious victuals. We're in for a real good blowout. It's all been booked. You have to be unbooked. You need rest in the quiet of the country. I hate the country. Anyway, how can you rest with all that bleeding dawn chorus? Oh. What's the matter? My, my feet feel like lead. The sweat is pouring off me. Now, Mr. Elkins, do keep calm. These are only shadows, you know. Shadows? On me lungs? I'm being eaten away. This is the end of me. Oh, God in heaven, help me. Uh, she says it's just an infection, but he's going to have to convalesce. But as he looks out of the window, he sees a funeral It's so cortege. great, isn't it? He sees yeah. a funeral cortege going right by into yeah. the cemetery. Shadows um, on me lungs. <laughs> and he collapses. This is one of the most exquisite screenplays. I don't know how much mm. they change from the play, but I, I can watch this film again and again, and there's not one thing I'd change about it. No. No, absolutely not. It's really important. It's a really important film, I think. I, I saw this as a teenager. It just happened to be on telly one night. I just watched it, and it just really impacted on me and I couldn't explain why at the time but now I realise it's just because he's a horrible man and it's yeah. like road signs and although it's not here <laughs> I, I have to mention the soundtrack I like mm. a lot of people don't think I like jazz but I, the Sonny Rollins soundtrack I have and it's 
magnificent. It's Rolling great. along. I thought it was um, Burt Bacharach, but it's not. He just did the song. He just did the song. And we could talk about the song at the end because it's the Cher version. It's so good. And in fact, I'll say it now. It just shows, this film shows how the right person doing the right thing can be magnificent and the wrong person doing the same thing can be an utter disaster. So was people share doing it at the end of this film? Yeah, so people know oh. the Silla Black version, which was released as a single, Black, yeah. and I can't stand it's it. It's horrible. It's so horrible. Yeah. And, I mean, she's dead, so I guess I could see whatever I like, but mm. I've never understood um, why people <laughs> brought her music because... Just because the voice is powerful, I've never found any emotion. I've just felt it's like a being bludgeoned. Yeah. And you listen to the share version at the end, and it sparkles and gleams. Yeah. And it's a completely, uh, it's it's a really nuanced interpretation. And I could listen to it again and again and again. But if I ever hear the Silla Black version, I can't bear more than a couple of no. seconds. I have to Her version sounds like she's standing on some Lego. She just goes really high, really quickly, and, and it, it makes the song. It makes the song itself sound horrible. Yeah. Whereas when Cher sings it, it sounds like a beautiful song. And there's kind of shimmering um, um, orchestration to it as well. Yeah. But the, the title sequence at the end, we should talk about too. But it's worth watching that closing credit sequence with that song. Mm. And I, I, you can't get her version of it anywhere. And it, it's the one they should put on the soundtrack. They album, should. And it's the one that should be better known. I wasn't really listening when it came on because I just thought, oh, it's the Cilla Black version, so I won't bother. But yeah, then you come to mention yeah, it, no, it do. wasn't. It's yeah. the highlight of the film. I think this is mm. one of the first films to have all the credits at the very end. Mm. Yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah, because it just launches into you know the yes, film. And at the end is when you get everyone's face and it's all done photographically. That's right. Yeah, because the, the title is literally just the, words Al- the word Alfie, isn't it? Because she yeah. says... He says, my name is, and she says... It comes out. I mean, the film has a sense of animation. It's groundbreaking in all kinds of ways. Mm. And now you come to mention it, it's such a play, isn't it? Because you can imagine that as a play. Yeah, well, have you ever seen that um, Michael Caine did a masterclass for TV? He did. Um, And there's a young... Who who is that young actor who he coaches through one of the scenes, the Shelley Winters bedroom scene? It's so confusing because Peter Serovanovich did an incredible parody of it. And all I can think of is his version, you know, with the... If you hold a cigar, it looks like a sausage on camera and all that. So I can't remember now. But if you have a chance to see it, it's worth watching. Because, mm. I mean, obviously Michael Caine knows that role better than anyone else. But he directs the guy to get right in at the camera and twist his face into it. But, you know, you're, on the one hand, you're talking about someone's in lovely shape. And on the other hand, you're turning to talk to the audience about... Mm. Oh, it's, um, it gives me goosebumps watching him direct another young actor in the role. Yes, but this film's another good, great example, actually, for people who are, say that boring thing about, oh, Michael Caine, not a very good actor. Because in this, he's got so many lines to put out, as well as all the emotional scenes he has to do later. And he's just a masterclass of yeah. his, his t- trade. It is, it is. And I, I mean, it's it, it could... I think when you've done a film this good early in your career, actually all the, the swarms and Jaws 3... Four. four sorry, Jaws 4. I mean, who cares? <laughs> he didn't care. He didn't care. He likes money. And good for him. <laughs> Oh, and actually, this is the bit where, with Eleanor Bron, mm. it's the fathers of justice. Because he starts ranting about, you know, kids need a father. And, yeah. and, and it's, again, you see, you see all the modern resonances. Because yeah. this is the first discussion about absentee dads who feel they've been excluded from their kids' lives. Yeah, and he doesn't stop for a moment and think why he's been excluded from his son's life or yeah. what he could have do, done to change his, his own behaviour. Yeah. Not to knock all fathers for justice, but no, 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 no. Michael is not a great advert for them. There is a deleted scene in this where he dresses up as Spider-Man and goes to the top of Big Ben. <laughs> throws some purple powder. Yeah. No, he doesn't do that. That's in the sequel. Oh. Uh, but so. he, yeah, he wakes up and he, he's in his sanatorium, sharing a room with Harry, who's played by a young Alfie Bass. Right, so two things about this. One, Alfie Bass is supposed to be 35, married with three kids. I'm a lot older than 35, and I still look younger than Alfie yes, Bass. Yes, you do. Yes, yes. But then 
I mean, it's not hard, is it? You that jumped out at me as well. I thought people 30. looked then. I know, but the other thing I found fascinating is you know uh, Galton and Simpson met in a TB sanatorium they like did. this. Yeah. And every time I watch Alfie, I think of the remarkable lost world in which people with illnesses might just stumble into a friendship. And mm. Linda Grant's written quite a powerful novel um, called I think it's called the, the Black circle or something but it's about um, a, a TB sanatorium after the war and they were doing some terrible I think this is a bit later but in the 50s they were doing some terrible experiments on people um, before they had started treating them properly with antibiotics and they were sort of collapsing their lungs and things and oh breaking ribs and doing terrible stuff but the idea of spending months and months there and mm. it is beautiful is it Morden Hall Park or somewhere it looks lovely I must admit, because I'm a middle-aged man with children, I kept thinking, oh, I'd, be like really to, nice I'd like to go own, there. I know, and then so your partner would look after the kids and you just get to see them. Lie around all day. Yeah. Yes, with the, well, and there's the nurses. Well. It's a bit carry-on, really, isn't it? It is very carry-on. Is it Shirley Ann Field? I think it, it might. It is Shirley Ann Field. Yeah, because Alfie Bass goes very carry-on, because when he comes out from behind the screen, he goes, you dirty beast. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you can imagine someone saying in a career. Yes, well, Shirley Anfield come to give them. She knows she comes to come to give you your, is it your injection? Something like that. Yeah. And, and then he she takes pulls her behind the screen. And then her, sh- her feet disappear off the ground. Yeah, and his stay there. Yeah. Dirty beast. Dirty beast. <laughs> and uh, old Alfie Bass's poor wife, she's always late. She's always got a 20-minute story as to why she's 20 it's minutes It's Vivian late. Merchant, isn't it? Yeah, she's, she's another tragic lady in this film. I know. So hard to take. There's so many of them. So first wife of Harold Pinter and was completely broken by the divorce. Right. Their son never spoke to his dad again, I think. Wow. They had a really acrimonious breakups. You would think of having an affair for a long time. And she, she died an alcoholic. Oh. No. That's really, it makes it even more tragic. I know. And she's a remarkable performer. Um, there's, I mean, we'll talk about the abortion scene later on. But she mm. was rightly Oscar nominated as Best Supporting Actress. Oh, I didn't realise Which that, again yeah. now, you think, I, I, I mean, they just, I just don't think in the current American climate they would nominate someone playing a role like that. No, no, no. Just, no. It's got all the no-nos. And the, the other thing is, you know, she's not, she's not a beauty. I think it's fair to say. And I think one of the, one of the other things that's quite surprising about this film, is think, oh, it's, he's just a misogynist, mm. is the women in it aren't conventional modern beauties. No. I mean, I haven't seen the whole of that Jude Law remake. I've just seen the trailer. But everyone in it looks like a model. I was going to say, we'll talk about that at the end. Yeah, yeah but yeah. Um, Vivian Merchant looks like, you know, a lonely, um, dowdy housewife. Yes, I was just going to say the same two words. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what she's playing in this. And, and he sees he sees the potential in her. And he's happy to cheer her up in his own <laughs> selfish way. It's all so unpleasant. Um, oh. Do you ever wonder whether the sex with Alfie, with Alfie as opposed to Michael Caine, hmm. with Alfie is actually that good? No, I think it's very mechanical and um, not particularly... Don't think pleasant. he's worried about her pleasure. Oh, no. No, 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 no. We won't go into detail. But <laughs> no, no, just no, no. wondered... Um, I think he sees it as a means to an end, as as it were, literally. Um, but um, he speaks to Harry, and Harry's saying how he misses his kids. And to make Harry feel better, he starts talking about what it'll be like after he's dead and who his wife will marry. That's right. Horrible. And Harry even tries to leap out of his chair at one point yeah, and beat him up. Yeah, punch him. And, yeah. Then, and then he says, which is sums up the entire film, Alfie says to Harry, I never meant to hurt you, Harry. I don't mean to hurt anybody. And Harry just turns to him and goes... You do, Alfie. You do. What's going on? What are you getting at? I only want you to see the truth and start getting better. Now, for the first month or two after you're gone, your wife and kids might take some flowers to the cemetery. But once she's married again, and the kids start calling Uncle Bill Dad, your little grave will become just a mass of weeds. If you walked into your own home six months later, 
your kids have run up to Uncle Bill shouting, Dad, who is it? Look, if you don't stop, I'll knock your bloody head in. Uh, Harry, now, Harry, stop it. You Harry. broke me up the wall. Harry, all I want is for you to see life, see what it is and what it does to you. I, I never wanted to hurt you, Harry. I never want to hurt anybody. No, I suppose not. But you do, Alfie. But you do. Um, Which sums up the entire film. It does. Well, the other line, and I don't know quite where it is around here, she or it, they're all birds. Yeah. When does he say that? I think is it's it just a voiceover? Yeah, yeah. Which, again, it's just, what does that even mean? Yeah. Does he then come back? To he the sanatorium? He back at the train station. He comes out, or does it go on for a while, this whole sanatorium stuff? The, he's, it's, after this scene, he leaves... And he bumps into Murray. Yeah, so he comes back to London. He's yep. been released. And he meets his best friend, Murray Melvin. So I can tell you my Murray Melvin story. Please I, do. I've got to know Murray really well because I interviewed him for a couple of programmes and we have lunch every so often. Hmm. And I said to me from the first time I interviewed him, I said, how did you get cast as the best friend of this really straight, probably um, homophobic hmm. um, character? And he said he'd been in, in Lewis Gilbert came from theatre and Murray Melvin had started out in theatre and he kind of had this repertory of, you know, actors that he'd got to know. So he basically said, you know, see what you can make of it. And it is it is really, I mean, I think it's fair to say it's quite, at best, unusual casting yeah. because he, you know, he comes across as quite... Um, I don't think one should assume he's gay, but he comes across quite camp. Yeah. And the idea that he's Michael Caine's best friend is certainly a little bit of a surprise. Um, but, and he's also the kind of um, listening figure. So they have these conversations sort of speckled through the film where Michael Caine basically pours his heart out yeah. about his feelings At least to Murray twice. Melvin. Yeah. Which, again, you know, all that stuff about men not talking. In this film, they kind of talk like um, girlfriends talk, mm. don't they? Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, he's a kind of he's his cheeky chappy friend who has always has a new scam um, for making money, and is sort of there to cheer him up. But um, but a lot of the time he's just there to listen. Hmm. But uh, yeah, it's um, and of course Murray Melvin came out of well, his big role was um, as the best friend in A Taste of Honey yes. with Rita Tushingham, which he played on stage and he played in the film as well, and they got Cannes um, Film Festival nominee, nominated for that. And the kind of careers, film careers took off from then. What else has he been in? Oh, I've well, seen he famously him in, in The Devils. He has to torture Oliver Reed. Yeah. And told me he, he, he told me he took off and be sick oh. after shooting those scenes. Um, what else has he been? He's directed a lot of operas in recent years. Yeah. Um, he, and of course, he was Bilkis in Torchwood. He gets a lot of right. fan stuff. And I saw him. I remember one day I was watching one of those um, um, uh, pop video music channels yeah. and there was an Emily Sonday video where she's being pressured to sign a contract and she'd been surrounded by old men dressed as Mussolini and Hitler kind of gal lighters in sort of jodhpurs with whips and, they're, and one of them was Murray Melvin and I said I suddenly spotted you don't we ask you know it was kind of work and you realise there were all these actors of a certain vintage because he's in his 80s now mm. who all just get rung up to kind of be cast as we're, we're looking for gal lighters for this pop video <laughs> and he said I have no idea what it was about but they all had to sort of point at her in an intimidating way while wearing um, um, glasses. He all looked a bit like Himmler or something. Right. Or Goering. It's very odd. But I'm trying to think what else. Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon. Yeah, well, he's I a had huge, to look it up. He's yeah. a huge admirer of um, Stanley Kubrick and he's often been interviewed about working with him. Of course, Kubrick's supposed to have been really hard and difficult. Yeah. But one of the, his big stories about working with Kubrick on Barry Lyndon is, you know, 
the, all those candlelit scenes and you said you know, you'd be standing there and they'd light all the candles and you'd be waiting hours and hours and then the candles would burn down too far and they'd have to relight them all and do it again yeah. and it was just he just remembers hours and hours and hours of waiting but he felt Kubrick was a master mm. and the film shows no, it he was um, and, and you know it, it worked but, but he's lovely he's Murray yeah but he uh, tells Alfie about his job which is street photography now he should try it. Yeah, going down. So, and, and again, this is a technology you'd have to explain to young people. When yeah. You didn't have your own phone to take photos. No. People would stop you. And I can remember it happening quite recently, actually, around London landmarks, mm. stopping you to take your picture and then they'd get money off you and then they'd send you the prints. Mm. Um, and he catches this interest. He sort of spots this interesting couple, which is Shelley Winters and a sort of very posh um, Yeah, bowler-hatted man bowler with an umbrella. Man who's clearly... On an afternoon assignation of some kind. Yes. Um, yeah. But she's interested in Alfie because he's fairly attractive and cheeky and uh, chappy. And he gives she gives him his phone number. Yeah. Or her phone number, sorry. And uh, so he's, he's scored there. And then he heads back to the sanatorium to visit Harry. Yeah, and he takes um, his wife Lily. Yeah, she says, oh, you'd give her a lift home, would you, Alfie? Mm. She's like, don't, don't ask don't him that. Don't ask me to get in a car. He goes, yeah, all right, I'll give her a lift. And then that, this is where the unpleasantness begins. Well, technically, it's an unpleasantness. I mean, they go off, he takes her for a nice tea, they go for a, a boat ride. It looks like it's Runnymede or something. Yeah. And then and then they have what? I mean, it's consensual sex. But he does willows. say, when she smiles, she ain't so ugly after all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when she smiles that little smile of hers, I'm quite touched by it. Yeah. Now I look at her. She ain't so ugly after all. Uh, and then he says, he, he gives her a kiss, and then the narration says, it'll round off the tea nicely. <laughs> and then, as good to say, they have sex, and then they both look fairly regretful about the whole thing. And uh, he takes her home. And then the next day, he's driving to, he's, he's dressed as a chauffeur again, and he sees Jane Asher oh, hitchhiking. This is such a great, a great sequence. So he sees her hitchhiking, and it's... um. At a service station, isn't it? Yeah. And I, this is this is the one bit where I the only genuinely disturbing bit of the film I find. Well, there's two things. One is um, it's the only moment of real pop in the film where mm. you know it's what, what he puts on the jukebox and there's a Rolling Stones gig poster in the background. That's right. But there's this sense of the guys, all the truckers, sharing the birds mm. um, and who gets to pick up which hi female hitchhiker and the assumption that you will have sex with her yeah, um, without any regard to whether they would want to um, and he, he comes up to doesn't he because he spots her getting out the van with I don't know who the guy Frank, is with Frank who looks about 58 years old and says oh you don't you don't want sharing do you he, share, he would share he shares his birds with his mates and he's got a wife and he's got a wife. Well, yeah. you'd think that's the least of it. Yeah. <laughs> the best thing is his big sellers. When he talks about his car, it's got a radio heater, the lot. Yeah. <laughs> and doesn't he also say he'll knock your block off? Yeah. That's the moment of violence. Yeah. It? But he's talking about Frank threatening. He's talking her. about Frank, yeah. We don't know if it's true or not. We might just be lying. Yeah. See, one of the things I like about the scene is Jane Asher's mystery. One, I, I have to say, I'm not sure how accurate that Sheffield accent is. I don't think it's very accurate. I don't accurate. think it's very accurate. She's living in um, Wimpole Street with Paul at this point. She was, she, yeah. She was very nice and genteel. She was Ms McCartney. Ms McCartney. But, um, but there's a mystery because she says, I want to make a new start. Mm. Um, and you never, I mean, you sort of find out why. She's obviously left behind a miserable, broken relationship. She's heartbroken. But yeah. you never really find out what she's run away from. No. She says, I want to make a life for myself in London. And then it hard cuts to her scrubbing Alfie's floor. Yeah. And him saying, it ain't come up too bad. Yeah. He said, it's in love. 
It's a beautiful tiled floor, by the way. It is. For Islam. It's got a nice flat for well, a slum. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a garret. There's rain outside. Um, and it's it's a line which could have been from a song. And it's great. And it's really interesting that he says it. Like his pop song, he says, forget him, girl. I'm right here and in the flesh. Yeah. Which is as a line. It's a line you would expect in a poem or a song. Yes. It's quite a swaggering thing. Um, but the pattern begins again because he leaves her in servitude looking after the home. And goes off to see Shelley Winters. Yeah, but before he does, doesn't he talk about her as um, sometimes I forget it's as human as you are? Is that yeah. when she's crying in bed after yeah. they sex? Yeah. Well, you, can, you know, again, this is why I find it fascinating. It's not that what he does isn't, isn't horrible, but you can tell he's feeling a bit uncomfortable about having sex with someone who's clearly crying. Yeah. And very, very and more naive than Gilda as well. Yeah, and I think again that's Lewis Gilbert's direction. He very much shows it though. You know, you think you see the tears in her eyes glinting. She has very little dialogue, Jane Asher, but her no. character is, you know, and she actually is one of the most powerful. Cause she, she is. She does run away. She leaves him. She's the only one who does leave. She him. does, yeah. But then it's back to visiting Shelley Winters. Shelley, Wong, Shelley Winters, who is a sex pot and lust box. And represents kind of this modern new... She lives in a new 60s apartment block. Which is £15 a week with central heating. Not central bad, heating. eh? And I was looking at all the things in her flat because it's full of knickknacks. So there's yeah. a Humpty Dumpty thing. It's got that really famous blue lady pick. Yeah. You know, that sort of... Um, she looks sort of Polynesian. Yeah, you she's see She's a Chinese everywhere. lady in a, in a Cheongsam or something. Yeah. And she's got that. And she owns three hairdressers. And her bathroom fittings are all a bit garish, aren't they? Mm. Um, so I can't work out whether Lewis Gilbert is something mocking. I suppose he is, but it's this would be Alfie's idea of class, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, he's very happy. He he's later on talks about settling down with her. And this is where that, there's that great scene where they're sort of having sex, but he's talking to the camera at the same time. Yeah. She's in lovely condition. Yeah. God say it. Oh God, if he's in lovely condition. <laughs> I felt half-hearted. I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> Um, but at the same time, he's slightly worried because Jane Asher is making lovely Lancashire hot pots and steak and kidney pies, oh. and it's blowing him out. Yeah. And so then, again, the, the language. So when he goes to that pub and his friends say, "Oh, you're looking a bit blown Tony out. Selby says, "You're looking blown out." Yeah. But the language. There's there's a whole um, idiom of the characters in this play, which I've never heard anywhere else, and mm. it's the words like poncified. You're looking poncified yeah. and um, puffed out, and they know no one ever says fat. It's really no. interesting. It's a much more rich um, sort of set of words, and that pub scene where they're having this conversation is so much like the one to come and get Carter. I was going to say it's very similar. Isn't it's it? not the same singer, is it? There's no, this is Queenie rough, Watts. It's kind of this kind of rough sound. She's got that amazing kind of gravelly voice, and it's sort of a trad mm. jazz sound. Yeah. And of course, the fight breaks out. And escalates incredibly fast. Yeah, because Frank turns up, who he stole Jane Asher yeah, from, and, and, and punches him. And suddenly, before you know it, these women are, are hitting each other. Which... It's a mass brawl. <laughs> it's like the Wild West. Yeah, I suppose it's what, maybe the Americans felt they needed that, you know. And it has a couple of moments of farce, which the is gay, very odd. The gay men. Well, no, you get a guy thrown through a, a hole in the wall, so his head pokes out. Yes. And then someone else... a very Tom and Jerry moment. Very Tom it? and Jerry. And someone else's head goes into the bass drum as it fin- the song finishes. Yes. Dunk. Yeah, but also there's that, that couple who are clearly supposed to be a gay couple. Right. Um, and when the fight really kicks kicks off, you see one of them hugging the other and protecting him. And oh, they're kind I didn't of, notice They're that. nestling in an alcove. And it's really odd. It's sort of observational. It's mm. sort of documentary-like, but it's sort of comic as well. Um, and there's a really huge guy who's kind of blonde yeah. who you know Massive. suddenly stands up, doesn't he, yeah. when um, Frank makes the mistake of punching him and you realise. He reminded me of the Dutch guy in Journey to the Centre of the Earth with um, James Mason, but perhaps... 
I'm just being racist, and he just looks like another Dutch tall blonde man. He's enormous. Though. He is enormous. He's like obviously a bodybuilder or something, yeah. isn't he? But yeah, it's got a lot of slapstick jokes that are just mm. in this scene and then never again. Yeah, and Queenie Watts, who was in Holiday on the Buses, so this is now oh, was linked. She? Yeah, she was married that. to Arthur Mallard in it. Oh my God! Yeah. I just feel like you're completing all these missing connections. I, I know. didn't know I needed to know. It's just happening. I didn't do it. Nothing to do with me. Um, so he comes home to Jane Asher and he's just really horrible to her and announces that he's read her diary. Oh, yeah. Well, that, well before he does that, doesn't he have a thing about... Because he's got a black eye, hasn't yeah. he, from the fight? So he's looking for a stake to put on it. Does mm. that work, by the way? I've heard it does. I mean, yeah, it seems like in the 1960s, a big piece of meat like that would be a big waste. Yeah. I thought. Anyway, but she's cooked it. Yeah, for the steak and kidney, kidney pie. pie. And she said, what a cook? She thinks, you know, if, if, if you had, um, what's that show, Great British Bake Off now, mm. she would have run away and she would have become the winner of the Great British Bake Off. Yeah. And then Alfie would have seen her on TV and been really upset. That would have been how you'd have done her. Absolutely. One twist. But yeah, he's, what does he say? Why can't we have something out of a can once in a while? Spam. Handsome food, that is. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, and the reading my diary. Oh, see, again... Even to have her keeping a diary. And then the fact that he would read it. Because mm. in a way you'd think, if you were a real misogynist, what would you care about what she thinks? Yeah. But he does read it. Mm. Them some private thoughts. I know, it's horrible. And that's when she decides to leave him. Yeah. He's, I can't remember what exactly he says, but he says something truly horrible to her. So she just goes and gets her stuff. Yeah, it's interesting I haven't written that down. No. Like what he said. Um, but it's something to do with who she's left behind, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and she just starts packing a bag and walks out saying, don't let your custard spoil. That's right. No, she's made him this lovely pudding. Yeah. I just think she makes pudding every night. Yeah. It's horrible. But there she goes. She, and she runs down the street and you have that great tumbling music, don't you? Yeah, because he I goes to chase her, doesn't her. he? Or yeah, he, does he? I don't think he does at first. No. He, he takes the pudding out and yeah. he sees it. Yeah. And he has a think about it. Yeah. And does he throw it, possibly? He threw the pie at the wall. He threw her... That's why pie. she left, because he threw yeah, the pie threw at the, the wall. Yeah, threw the pie. But when he takes the pudding out of the oven... Yeah. He, it ta- it's like something about the pudding is is what triggers him to then go after her, but it's too late. Yeah, and she's she's run off fast and she's disappeared around the corner. Yeah. Um, but that's yeah, a great moment. And we never see her again. No. But the next thing we see is Harry's wife arriving uh, to have an abortion. And can I say, the thing about his flat that you really notice that changes, because there's a sequence before she comes in, is you see, obviously Jane Asher had kept his flat pristine. Hmm. And doesn't the camera start with this pan across his apartment? And it's filthy. Yes. It's full of unwashed dishes and mess. Hmm. And Vivian Merchant comes into that. Um, so, you know, again, even without a word of dialogue, Lewis Gilbert is telling you so much about how Alfie's life is unravelling. Yeah. And then Denham Elliott comes around and you get the line where Alfie goes, uh, well, here we are. And Denham Elliott goes, what do you mean, here we are? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many minutes of screen time Denham Elliott has. About six, I reckon. But Incredible. I don't know if he was Oscar nominated for this, but he should have been. Oh. I mean, it's he's so he's so horrifyingly sleazy I mean it's a horror movie character he's you know he's he's got this exasperated look he knows exactly what to say or not to say so that if there's an entrapment issue he can't be caught also, and so he, he starts seems, asking all these questions he seems slightly legitimate as well he starts off looking like he might be a doctor yeah but there's something there's something unwashed about him isn't mm. there and there's sort of the haze of alcohol mm. somehow that comes across and that he's probably a medical student or a doctor who's kind of fallen off the ladder yeah. somewhere and is now kind of earning this way and he starts pointing out that it's more if it's been more than 28 days which I didn't quite know how the abortion because you know abortion still isn't legal it's been partially decriminalised yes. but it is still a criminal offence and in those days if it was more than 28 days after um, pregnancy which basically means the first two weeks you don't even know you're pregnant until mm. you're, you're a month gone um, it could be seven years in jail 
Yep. Um, so you kind of get a sense of what, what was at stake then. And then, of course, the amount of money he asked for £30, which I can't work out what that would have been. Uh, I don't know, but he gets him down to 25 doesn't he? Well, I said 25 is what we agreed. He goes, oh, 25 then. It's yeah, well, you know, it's it's good to show young people this. I think we take so much for granted yeah. about um, reproductive rights, and and um, we take so much for granted about oh, the rights of the unborn child, but actually the reality of people in a time when the stigma of pregnancy was horrifying, mm. um, and how you would deal with it, and just the horror of that filthy flat, and you know, the idea of a those, medical those horrible there. seedy curtains as well. I know, I know. He takes her in behind the curtains, and Alfie waits while the procedure is carried out. And then Denham Elliott comes out and says, and he says, oh, is it done? He says, no, it's not done. I've just induced her. Yeah. You have to wait for it to take, you know. And then he says, I'll give you two tablets if the temperature goes up. He said, actually, take six just in case. God. And then he says, well, what do I do? And he just says, give her tablets if her temperature goes up. When it comes to the pain, I'm like every other bloke. I just don't want to know. Mm. That's another great line. Absolutely. Um, again, in this scene, though it's shot, I think there's scenes where you can see he's looking in a mirror and is reflected back. You know, they're sort of, they're, they're never quite looking at each other, are they? No. They're left in that flat alone together. And again, the composition of it, there's a poetry to it. This is mm. really high art, dealing yeah. with this incredibly difficult subject. Um, and the other thing that we really notice about the scene is the agony, because, you know, she's sitting very quietly. She's often quiet throughout the film in her yeah. scenes, Vivian Merchant. You know, she, she keeps everything in, and she's obviously horrified how she's ended up in this position. Um, and after the, the silence... Every woman in this film is really quiet when you think mm. about it in their scenes with him. And then she suddenly starts screaming and yeah. screaming like an animal, screaming in the agony of, of the kind of first, I suppose it's a kind of contraction, isn't it, going mm. on. Um, and that's when he slaps her to shut her up. Yeah. So he says, uh, his landlady will hear and she'll call the ambulance yeah. and the police. And then she does. Yeah. But they kind of let that play out in real time. It's it's. She tells him to go for a walk. Yeah. And he says, I feel bad about leaving her, but we, what are you going to do? Just he offered to make her a cup of tea. Yeah. A cup of tea. A cup of tea. No thanks. So he goes for a walk and he just happens to pass a church where he sees little Malcolm come out. So it's the church where, um, in Battersea, where yep. um, the two of them first had that chat about marriage. Yeah. And now it's um, it turns out to the christening of their new baby together. Their new baby. And he sees that Malcolm's really happy with Graham Stark. He's calling him daddy. Dad. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Yeah, they all seem very happy. It's quite a walk, by the way. He does Borough Market, and and then he ends up at um, Battersea. And he's living in, uh, I looked it up. Chepstow Road, W2. Yeah. I know, which is really fancy. It's Twickenham, isn't it? Chepstow, no, it's Notting Hill. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, it's not. It's the heart of Notting Hill. I mean, right. those houses are worth tens of millions now. <laughs> but, but, you know, in the 60s, it was kind of classic Rackman London, wasn't it? It's yeah. where they shot performance around there, too. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but he returns home and it's all over. Uh, yeah. Lily's getting dressed again. And she says, don't go in there. Yeah. Because obviously the abortion has kind of happened. Yeah. Um, but he does. Mm. Um, and he cries. And again, in his, in his new book, Michael Caine talks about the best bit of advice he got. And it was um, Joan Littlewood, who, who fired him. We ran you know, the theatre workshop. But she, mm. um, she also trained Murray Melvin. And I think she was the one who said, one, that you had to inhabit the character. But also I think he learnt about... The whole point about being a man crying is that you're trying not to cry. And yeah. it's, it's trying to hold it back. Um, it's, he's got lovely, lovely eyelashes. Oh, just beautiful eyes. I know. Really beautiful eyes. And his hair and everything around this point, he just looked great. Um, so he runs away because he can't deal with it. And he goes to see Murray Melvin. And he tells Murray Melvin he prayed and cried because he didn't know what he expected to see. Oh, this is that scene I just feel, in a way, you could argue 
doesn't ring true, but is one of the reasons the film is so powerful because he's discussing his feelings and he says, I was crying for me bleeding self. Yeah. yeah, not which, is, the, which is quite insightful, if I may say so. Yeah, he says, not for the kid. He'd add it. It was for me. And then oh, he goes back and Lily's still there and he, he borrows 25 quid off Murray Melvin. That's right, to put in her purse. And he puts in her purse that I'm seeing. And he does he try to give the big teddy? And he tries to give he tries to give her a big teddy to a woman who's just had an abortion, so she's carrying this baby like thing. It's just yeah. like the worst thing. But it was a teddy that he'd bought for Malcolm. For Malcolm that yeah. he never gave. Um God, everything about that. But I still think when you see Mark Kane's face looking at the aborted remains of his oh. baby, I've never seen a scene like that anywhere else as powerful about hmm. about abortion. Have you? No. No. Yeah. And, it, and again, it's one of those moments where you everything's just spelled out in their face. Yeah, and, and, and it's to. not made more of than it needs to be. No. And you can rewatch that film and not think about that scene coming because the film is overall really fun. And also, you know? it's, it's littered with narration, but that moment doesn't need it because no. it's all there. And, oh, so powerful. Uh, but to take his mind off everything, he goes to see Shelley Winters and he's talking about it. He plans to settle down with her and he just walks into her flat because he's got the key. And he's yeah. bought her a massive bunch of flowers. Which are not just any flowers. Yeah. Look at the wrapper. Yeah. They're not off a barrow. Yeah. And I love those little distinctions that you yeah. would make about where you've got something. And he's wearing his RAF blazer, isn't he? He is. Which is the bit where he suddenly gets, starts to get into slightly dirty, rotten scandals yeah. territory, don't you? Which yeah. Is, um, that is fakery. Or was he yeah. in the RAF? He's he doesn't been... mention he was in the RAF. No, he doesn't sound like he was. No, um, I doubt he was. And then he spots the guitar. Mm-hmm. There's an electric guitar. <laughs> it's really funny. And a radio. <laughs> Oh yeah, the radio. That radio new, from? Yeah, and then she comes out of her bed because obviously let herself in with his key. Well, she tries to call his bluff because she says she's got a terrible. Yeah, she comes out of the bedroom, and he's and she says she's got a terrible headache, and then he starts cuddling on it. Says you got a fella in there, and she says mind your own business or something, and then she just unguards the door as if to say we'll go in there go then in if there, you don't yeah. believe me. But he does go in there, and there is indeed a man in the bed, a young man. He's very young. I guess say he's quite fey looking. Yeah, and she says he's younger than you, and he's nice. Does she say he's nice? Yeah. And does Michael King call him a lust box? Yeah, I think so. I think he calls her, her a, lust a lust box. box. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, so he... it's again, it's such a wonderful scene because it completely undermines. At that point, Michael King, the one thing he's sure of is I can go into any, you know, her flat, she's mine. Yeah. And on my terms. Yeah. And the idea that. Well, he's it's met on another Alfie, terms. hasn't he? He's met a female yeah. Alfie and he doesn't like it. No. Uh, but he gives her one rose out of the bunch of flowers he bought, <laughs> puts it in her mouth, I think. <laughs> And then gives her a key back and leaves. I don't think he puts it in her mouth. Oh, doesn't he? I thought he did. Uh, and then he's walking down the embankment and he bumps into Millicent Martin again. Who, of course, was in the... Um, that was the week that was. It's over, let it go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's going to meet her husband and he's saying to her, you know, maybe we should meet up again. Sorry I haven't phoned you, I've been busy. Well, she says you didn't turn up. Yeah. And he says, oh yeah, I've been really busy. This is chickens coming home to roost, Alfie. Yeah, absolutely. But she said, oh, well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But she's not keen on him anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, where she slightly allows him to have the delusion that maybe, but actually she's completely... She, he's lost all his power. Yeah. I think that's the lovely way it's just also, unravels. The, the really punch fast. to the gut that Shelley Winters gives him saying, he's younger than you, because that's something he's going to have to deal with, is yeah. that he's going to get older. And all men have to deal with that. And if yeah. they've got money, they don't have to deal with it because they can just get younger women all the time. But yeah. Well, I was thinking, you know, um, what's his name died last year? Hugh Hefner. Yeah. And that whole playboy ideal that he created in the late 50s, which is only about five or six years before this. In a sense, Alfie's living that, isn't he? Because he's got yeah. 
I mean, there's a line around here when he says, you know, I've got a bob or two, decent clothes, a car, I've got my health back. But and of course, in theory, he can have any woman he likes because he's he's unattached. And that is, and I ain't attached, he says, but yeah. I ain't got me peace of mind. And if you ain't got that, you ain't got nothing. And then he says, it seems to me, if they ain't got you one way, they've got you another. You know what? When I look back on my little life and the birds I've known, and think of all the things they've done for me and the little I've done for them, you think I'd had the best of it all along the line. But what have I got out of it? I got a bob or two, some decent clothes, a car. I got my health back, and I ain't attached. But I ain't got me peace of mind. And if you ain't got that, you ain't got nothing. I don't know. It seems to me, if they ain't got you one way, they got you another. So what's the answer? That's what I keep asking myself. What's it all about? Know what I mean? Exactly. So in a sense, it's a feminist indictment mm -hmm. of the patriarchal myth sold by Hugh Hefner yes. in this film made in 1966. Which is when Hugh Hefner was still doing what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, so, what's it all about? And he's walking on Waterloo Bridge. Yeah. And this is when you go into that beautiful, beautiful closing sequence, which is all photographs. And I looked up the guys who took them. So Vic Singh, who's still around. Um, there's very little about him on the internet, but he was a huge rock photographer of the 60s. He took a lot of pictures of really big stars then. Hmm. And is it Harry Pecinotti or Pecinotti? It's an Italian name. But the two of them did the title sequence. And it's this kind of flashes of um they look like a silver nitrate photographic prints and each of the cast are shot like they're pop stars yeah. you know um and then shares song over it but that's what really gives it for me it's kind of pop um pop art gloss is that final touch about how it's presented because the whole film has dealt with some really dark um themes a lot of it's shot in kind of slums yeah. but it's sort of framed with this very 60s pop art beauty yes and i think it also leaves you walking out of that film on a high, despite the fact it's ended with Elfina. Yeah. A lonely place. Also bumping into the dog from the beginning again. Yeah. Which is a bit strange. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, out of curiosity on this, because I'm the the I was watching it on uh, the Skybox and the ending failed and then it wouldn't let me load it back in. So I went to YouTube to get the Alfie ending so I could get that dialogue. And um, the first thing that came up was the remake ending. So I thought, I'll have a look at that because I've yeah. never, ever wanted to see it. And my God, it's appalling. So I should say first, I mean, I really rate Jude Law as an actor. Yeah. I think he's beautiful. I think he's a really talented actor. Um, but I didn't go to see this just, when was it, 2004? Something like that, yeah. I just, you could tell everything about the casting around him and the way they would have had to have changed stuff to make it palatable to mm. an American audience now would have made it unbearable. So what, what, is it, what is it like? Well, it's the exact same ending. He does the exact same monologue, yeah. you know, peace of mind and everything. But he's not... Cockney, he's doing it smartly posh, so it doesn't have that charm or that kind of tear away thing. And um, the music's all uh, smushy and, Ooh, and not sentimental. sentimental, and it's all uh, in America, so it's all glossy and it just doesn't work. But I don't have peace of mind. And if you don't have that, you've got nothing. So... So what's the answer? That's what I keep asking myself. 
What's it all about? You know what I mean? Is he a chauffeur in America? I think so, but I didn't watch the whole film. I just watched the last two yeah. minutes on this clip. And it's the exact same speech, but he doesn't deliver it as well, obviously. And uh, he, I don't know, he just doesn't work. You just all. know it would have pulled all its punches. How would they have come up with an equivalent to the abortion stuff? Well, yeah. And even if an abortion issue is in there, I wonder how they would have dealt with it. Yes, I have, I have no compunction to find out, though, no. sadly. But uh, I, could, I would say that's Jude Law at his most beautiful. Yeah. But he also remade Sleuth. Did he? Yes, he did. The balls that's on the man. Imagine doing two <laughs> Kane remakes. Someone else has to make the decision and cast Well, Kane's in Sleuth with him, the remake. Oh, is he? Yeah, he plays the Laurence Olivier part. It's directed by Kenneth Branagh. But I've no interest to see it. No. Because Sleuth's a perfect film. Why would you want to remake it? No, not But anyway, that was Alfie. Go and see it if you haven't seen it. What, the, re- the original? No, 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 no everyone no. listening to the podcast who hasn't yeah. seen it. Oh, but please do. There are people out there. Yeah, there must be. It's phenomenal. Who's your favourite of all the, the birds? You mean who would I love? Oh, I even just meant maybe it's a performer. Maybe it all was right. an act. I don't know, I don't know. Take it how you like. I don't the one who had the most impact on me was, was Gilda. Yeah. Just because she's so nice and it's so horrible. You want to reach in and take her out of the situation and say, don't ever go back to him which is effectively what Graeme Stark does. And you see how happy she is at the end. So he did the right thing and she did the right thing. But yeah, I mean, I wasn't particularly interested in Jane Asher, although it's horrible. Um, But yeah, I thought Gilda was the nice one. I'd like to look after Gilda. Treat her nice. Well, if you see, if you, if you see Alleluia, because it's been filmed now as well, in NT Live, um, her eyes are unmistakable. She's lovely. Um, Eleanor Bron is my, she's my goddess in many ways. Yeah, she is. She's amazing. Actually, yeah, I'd probably go out with Ellen LeBron. I'd go out with Ellen LeBron and I'd like to marry Gilda. <laughs> Have you got a time for a line about Michael Caine's glasses? Yeah. Okay, I, I, I speed read key bits of this book. Okay. Right. It was a bit... The thing I can't get my head around is, you know, this is him that is absolutely sexiest and most heterosexual. Yeah. Um, and he he got sacked from... He had a seven-year contract after he made the Ipcrest fell. And they decided that he looked too gay and wearing big glasses made him look too gay. And he was generally gayish right. on screen and he would never be a leading man. And so they just cancelled his contract. Wow. And then he makes Alfie. I just find that really interesting. What a mistake in a maker. <laughs> Crikey. Yeah. What's that all about? What's <laughs> I just thought this was quite interesting. He talked about... Um, you know, when you're crying or anything, you sort of try and draw on something real. And he would think of, so when he had to cry, he would um, he would think about, oh, this is interesting because of Gilda. Unfortunately for me, but fortunately for my acting career, I have a wide choice of memories I can call on when I have to cry. Walking away from my first marriage when my elder daughter Dominique was a baby. Wow. That's interesting. Being told when she was a few hours old that my younger daughter Natasha had a 50% charge of making it, chance of making it. Um, but then he said, there's a memory... There's also a memory I go into that is so personal that I haven't even told my wife about it. I worry that if I tell her, the memory will be lost. It will be mixed up with my memory of her reaction to it. So I've held that one close. Wow. Which makes you wonder what it is. Yeah. And we've reached the point of the podcast where I'm going to ask you some questions. Oh, God, I have rubbish answers, probably. Oh, no, you haven't. I'll give you an answer in two weeks. I'll email me my answer. <laughs> All right. Go on, try it. Right, well, these are taken from Michael Caine's Twitter profile, most of these. 
Oh. So there's, there's context attached, right? I have okay. to explain. I'm not sure. So the first question is, have you ever been locked in attic? <laughs> okay, there was a story in the press saying that Michael Caine and a few other actors got locked in an attic. So he tweeted, the story about me being locked in attic, he said locked in attic, spelled A-T-T-I-K, completely false. Um, so have you ever been locked in attic? No, but my sister and her friend once got trapped in a phone box and they rang us from the phone box to say, get us out. And they were so little. And in those old days, the glass phone boxes had really heavy doors. They yeah. couldn't find the door, press it hard enough. Oh. So we had to go and rescue them. Oh, that's a nice story. At least they got out. <laughs> Eventually. What are your favourite music? <laughs> Did he? I, I'd love to know how he answered that. Uh, well, he likes chill out music. <laughs> he went on Desert Island Discs and picked chill out music. Well, I would say I like the soundtrack to Alfie, and that's probably the only jazz soundtrack I do like. Mm. Okay. Uh, have you ever had a wonderful day in your garden? <laughs> yes, I have had many wonderful days in my garden. Excellent. Uh, if, like Sir Michael, you were in beautiful Armenia for two hours and 53 <laughs> minutes before leaving for London, because he tweeted, hello from beautiful Armenia, <laughs> then two hours, 53 minutes later said, hello, London. Uh, how would you pass the time? I, th- I can think of the thing I would do, but it's it's really not. It's a bit serious. I'd probably see if they had any information about the Armenian genocide and and stuff and books about it in the airport shop. Well, yeah, you'd have two hours and fifty three minutes to study it. Yeah, there might be a museum or something as well. Possibly. Okay. If you were on a bus teaching on the edge of a cliff and suddenly had a great <laughs> idea to save the day, what would it be? <laughs> I don't know. I suppose I'd start by putting something good on the radio mm-hmm. to get everyone in the right mood. It's a good idea. And then you could work on a plan. Yeah. Did he ever come up with a plan? He did, didn't he say he had a plan for how you'd get off that ledge? Well, uh, in the film. No, I know he, yeah. he says he it says, in the film. all right, lads, I've got an idea. I know he says it in the film. Yeah. But didn't he claim that he'd worked out how you would actually get off the In one of his books, he tells about how scientists worked out. <laughs> they used physics. And, and is it to do with moving one bar at a time? I think so. Yeah, there was a big story about it about five years ago. The scientists had cracked it. And it's like, <laughs> guys, it's a do cancer, not the film. Good sake. Um... Uh, Michael Caine was known for not being fussy about his film choices. Can you make up a title for a would-be oh, Caine B movie? Not, that's what I should have thought. Not about, about bees. I know. See, you know, I think it took me two weeks to come up with a Bond girl name. Yeah, but it was a really good one when I did. It was. I couldn't tell you what it was now. Um, it was Burkini Facile. That's right. Did we actually record that? Or no. Did you? Well, you can say it now. It was Burkini Facile. Burkini Facile. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, You'd probably want to do something with Brexit, wouldn't you? Mm. Or gammon. I'm not allowed. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that word out loud. Though it's in the Collins Dictionary now, isn't it? Is it? Well, gammon's in gammon the dictionary. Gammon is in the Collins Dictionary. It's, it's not the word of the year. That's um, single use. But single use is the word of the year. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that two words? It's got a hyphen. Right. So it's um, got a trailer. Yeah. Can you yeah. think of something with gammon? I would probably, you'd probably even call Gammon and Chips. Gammon and Chips. He's called Ian Gammon and he starts a nightclub <laughs> with Ben Ben Chips. So who would play Ben uh, Chips? Oh, it would have to be another old Tom Courtney. <laughs> yeah. No, Tom would be too intense to take it quite too seriously. You need someone more like, because of course Roger's not around anymore. Oh yeah, okay. Um, there was a joke in that. There was. Anymore. Sorry, and it wasn't even intentional. No, again, your views do not represent. Sorry. I just gave my brother the um, the Roger Moore um, Live and Let Die Diaries. Can you, oh, you see, there you go. Just like Alfie turns out to be rather sensitive and he talks about his feelings to his best friend, um, Roger Moore kept a diary about his feelings while he was mm. making a James Bond film. He was a lovely man. And he was a lovely man. Yeah. Um, who would play Ben Chips? It would be... Even Albert Finney's not right. It needs to be someone much more like Michael Caine. 
I mean, I suppose you could do it with Ray Winston, couldn't you? I was just thinking Ray Winston. Yeah. Who else was in that Hatton? I was just thinking Ray Winston, film. Tom Courtney. Um, I couldn't tell you. It wasn't supposed to be very good. No, it didn't it? look very good. He talked about how he wanted to meet the guy he was playing. And apparently, <laughs> apparently the daughter of the guy he played said that Michael Caine was too low, like too common or too rough. And he said, I use that. Yeah. Because it was the idea that, um, what did he do? I can't remember. But I thought it was quite interesting that Michael Caine is going to play your dad. Yeah. And your dad complains that, oh, Michael Caine's too... too what did he want, class. George Clooney? I think he wanted someone, he must have wanted Kenneth Branagh or someone, I don't know. Oh, he could be Ben Chips. Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley uh, and Reunion Michael Reunion from Without a Clue. But channeling that, um, what's that film with the... Um, Sexy Beast. Sexy Beast yeah. vibe. Brilliant. Thank you. And they've got a nightclub and uh, it's being overtaken by... um, We should pitch this. We should. Russian mafia. (laughs) And it's up to Gammon and Chips to stop it. And there's some kind of Brexit clock ticking. Yeah. Yeah. We could have references to backstop. The the mafia say to him, I'm offering you a deal. You've got till March to accept it (laughs) or you'll have no deal. (laughs) And then Gammon and Chips are saying, we'll be fine. Don't worry. Bring it on. There you go. There's your film. And finally, yes. what would be your best and indeed worst Michael Caine films? Well, it's a tough choice between Alfie and Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Because I think Muppet Christmas Carol is great. So the Muppet Christmas Carol story is he researched that role by watching all the Wall Street villains on CNN who were being kind of arrested and arraigned at wow. the time. And this is when, I mean, this is a long time ago. This is years before um, the 2008 crash. Yeah. So he didn't and think he, of watching A Christmas Carol. No, no, he said, he said in his, he's so informative, he said, I played it dead straight, yeah. like I was in the Royal Shakespeare Company at the National Theatre. Yeah, he did the right thing. Yeah, and he, he said, I watched lots of CNN to get into the mindset of these villains, and they're still around, he said. Because he didn't at any point look down and go, what the hell is that, when he saw a talking mouse? Because no. that would have taken you out. But again, he's crying in this film. I think, basically, the films which Michael Caine cries are his best films. He cries them up at Christmas Carol. He does. When he sees the ghost so of Christmas future. Two best. I'm, it's hard to say worse, because I've, probably deliberately avoided some of the worst. I saw a bit of Richard, that film with Richard Widmark, The Swarm, but it's mm. shot on really good quality film, so it kind of looks like it'll have, um, does it have a certain 60s pulpy sci-fi yeah. pleasure to it? Not really, no, no, but it looks like it should. It's, Anything where he's he's wearing too much of a safari suit and he's looking a bit... He's got pantsuit. Pu- what's, what's it, blown out? I don't like those so much. Yeah. Some of the 70s ones are a bit... Yeah. I think I might even see bits of a shanty. I've never seen that one. Is that the one where... Um, Somebody kidnapped somebody's wife. Was that Horry with Ben Kingsley? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. There's a lot of dodgy films in the 70s. He did a lot of dodgy films, but he got a lot of houses. And he's very <laughs> he proud bought a of house it. for everyone. Everyone in my family got a swarm gazebo. <laughs> uh, so, Samira, thank you so much for coming in again. And you're always welcome to come back. You say that. I do say it, and I mean <laughs> it. It's an open, revolving door for you here. Uh, revolving door is not the right thing to say, is it? Just an open door. Revolving door sounds like you're always here, which is... Sadly, not the case. Uh, So again, from Michael Caine's Twitter feed, I will tell you this. Until next time, Samira, I will continue to have the best time. I hope you do the same. Thank thank you. you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. What's it all about? 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 